Evangelist Podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us. Wallow with us. This is episode 16, in which we will be discussing Old Man's War and Agent to the Stars by John Scalzi. Good morning, Lissa. Good morning, Marian. What do you what do you think about me throwing an extra book in there this time? I mean, I did not get the whole book reread, but I have read it before, and I like that we're talking about more than one book by the same author. Yeah, well, I read Old Man's War, and then I just went ahead and launched into Agent to the Stars. Just bam! You're amazing. Well, apparently, John Scalzi is what I needed for my uh, reading block. I've been suffering. I mean, I think John Scalzi is what everyone needs for their reading block, but it's my personal opinion. Okay. So what else has been going on in your reading and writing life? On the reading life, I have been reading a lot of nonfiction books, how to do this, how to do that, I guess. And on the writing life, I have been keeping track of the progress of my upcoming novel, which comes out in February of next year. And it has changed names. Yes. I know you and your daughter read it under its old title. And my son. And your son. Okay. He is We've a- all read it. Okay. Uh, but its new title is A Little Touch of Magic. Oh. You like that? I do. So it's uh, had a very... Um, literary title like all of my books always do when i'm when i'm drafting books i tend to pull snippets of poetry or quotes from books i like you know out of copyright books i like out and use that as their book titles Uh, but sometimes they need a bit of a, a spiff up and also the wonderful cover designer has sent um in some mock-ups of possible cover layouts and it's really exciting to see that and see what he's what he's doing and how he sees the characters in his head as opposed to how I see the characters in my head. So it's really neat to see somebody reinterpreting something that has lived inside your head for a long time. Yeah, that's like one of the big exciting, I mean, all of this is actually exciting to like, (laughs) like be near you while you go through um, and support you in and be excited and cheerlead for you in. Um, But that idea of like your characters go out and your book goes out into the world and other people see it differently and like also that's the point like when you write you're putting it out there and other people will make it in their own heads which is also kind of scary too i think i know a lot of writers who lisa (coughs) lisa who never show their writing to anybody um um, i'm just very coffee this morning i don't know what's the matter with me i know i know (laughs) one one particular writer who struggles with that yes um, one of the but, people on this podcast right. in particular. But, but I think one reason for that is that you put so much of yourself into something that you create. And if somebody didn't understand it or saw it really differently than you intended it to be, it's super scary. Um, and there's the whole, the whole imposter syndrome of, I can't write, I'm a terrible, terrible writer, and everyone will hate this thing. 
So, yeah. I will just, because I actually was speaking with another friend about this very topic this morning, um, say that it's also, if you wrote some semi-autobiographical things into your draft, or if you were working through your personal stuff, through your characters, it's extra vulnerable to let somebody else read it. Nonetheless, to go back and revise what is a thinly veiled version of yourself. Yeah. I always think this is one of the reasons why I don't write romance. It's like, if I wrote a sex scene, my mother could read that. Yeah. I mean, that's no, no. So I would have to write them all. Um, if I did, we're not blushing the whole time to embarrass myself to even read it or write it myself alone in a room. Um I would definitely have to publish under a pseudonym so no one would ever know it was me. Uh, yes. The struggle is real. <laughs> the struggle is real, Lisa. It is real. But thank goodness at least John Scalzi is writing books and putting them out there uh, for us to read. Yes, and has no problem putting his sex scenes right there on the page. <laughs> Although, yeah, they were entertaining ones, though. I've got to say, not a lot of sex in the Old Man's War. Uh, and even less an Agent to the Stars, I think. But... Uh, but kind of, kind of, they're wink, wink, nod, nod, sex scenes instead of, of yes, uh, and they almost always are. They're yeah. almost always off screen, or the plot is being advanced during them, right? Via the dialogue, we're, we're illustrating a thing, but that is yes. that's not necessarily yes. body parts. Yes. yes, very good. So I spent um, last, not last week, but the week before. Um, in an intensive coach training, leadership intensive, leadership coaching intensive, um, which I bring up because I, the whole time I really struggled to not think about all of the great ways this was going to help my writing. Oh, well, it's okay to think about those things. You're, you're uh, receiving the message and understanding it clearly and um, expanding yeah. it to your whole life. Yeah. Um, I decided that that was okay to think about. I did not share anything about being a fiction writer with the people who were allowing me to coach them because that would be super creepy um, because everything was done in confidence. But the kinds of questions I was learning to ask people were really great questions to ask characters. Is it, is it okay to give me an example? I mean, um, yes. Um, so some of it, I could see a leadership coaching session being very much like a plot development session or a working through a scene session in which whoever the writer or the character shows up and says and you say uh, what would you like to focus on during our time together today how will we know if we accomplish that and I was like oh those are really good <laughs> questions for fiction writers <laughs> right what do I need to accomplish in this scene like or if you just send your character straight to leadership coaching and they work through what experiment they're going to try in their own lives to try to make progress on their big challenge. Man, I feel um, I feel like on the side, I need you to like uh, uh, like Skype with me or something and le like leadership coach me now. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I'm I'm really tempted to try to offer that that this November. Um, I will still be full disclosure not yet finished with the course because there are a ton of practice sessions um, that I have to do. Um, in order to complete the coursework. Um, but it just seems so relevant to me to think through the ways in which characters adapt in their own lives to challenges and the ways in which we're real humans doing the same things. And 
I put those in the wrong order because, of course, humans come first. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Whatever. They're all the Whatever. same. I mean, they're little characters who are real to you. And, and uh, right. you know, they have needs, man. Mine, they do. They mine do. are frequently in total rebellion and refusing to do anything I want them to do. So I'm sure they need some coaching and clarification on their their goals and dreams and, and how they're going to get there and how they're going to know when they're there. Yeah, a lot of coaching turned out to be about like how to help somebody find clarity on the problem they're facing. Um, and you come at it from this perspective of uh, the person in front of you is whole and unbroken and you're not there to fix them. Uh, the answers, they have the answers within them and you're there to help them um, work to find what they want to try next to move forward on this challenge. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, I'm here for that. Yeah. It's a very Lissa kind of thing. It so. is a very Lissa kind of thing. Um, so that also ties into the book I started reading last night, which I'm loving. I read 50 pages straight through of a print book, which is unheard of for me right now. Um, I'll say it's nonfiction, um, but it's called The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Combat Tactics for Dungeon Masters. And it's also, it's not really like a coaching book, but it's like what different... D&D monsters think and believe about the world and how they interact with it. I have to say that I saw a picture of this book on your Instagram and um, as much as I would like to understand D&D monsters more, the first thing that jumped into my head was, man, I have such terrible problems writing bad guys and villains. I wonder if reading this book would help me understand, you know, the antagonists in stories that I'm writing better. I and, think it would. And characterize them better and give them better motivations, which is a big problem for me. Yeah, I think it really would because it's very much like what are the, you know, what are in the monster manual, what are the features and stat blocks that they have and how does that translate to how they would behave in situations? It's really interesting. It's cool. Okay. Definitely putting that one on my list then. Because I totally needed more books on my TBR, Alyssa. Yay! Oh, but if you can justify them, that's what's important. <laughs> I can always justify them. I have no problem justifying my urge to to put all the books on. Okay, so I've been reading a lot of ebooks because libraries and our libraries here, you cannot go in and look through the stacks. You can put books on hold and get curbside delivery, but you can't go into the stacks. So I've been reading a lot of ebooks as well. And I will say curbside delivery has not stopped me from having all the books I'm allowed to have in my house. But I was, I was so shocked when I went to check out an ebook the other day that said, you've reached your limit on checkouts. I'm like, what? I have 30 ebooks checked out? How is that even possible? But I did. I went through and looked. I'm like, oh, I should probably give some of these back so other people can read them not hoard all the electrons for myself. Oh, I mean, I think that you should hoard to an extent, like <laughs> until the end of your checkout is fine. <coughs> yeah. We'll see. But I mean, that's, that's a strategy, though, like broadening your world during these times of not broad worlds um, by ha surrounding yourself with lots of books and lots of options and lots of reading Yeah, and um, it, is a thing. Part of it is because I've been reading a lot of nonfiction books, I will like look up the subject that I want and then check out every available book on that. Yeah. And put all the others on hold. So I have, I have been checking out a lot of books on Hygge, as they say, the, this Danish concept of, of coziness and comfort and surrounding yourself with things that give you peace and, and happiness. 
in a low-key way. Um, so I had checked out all the books on that. And uh, hence, there are way more like flickering candles in my life now and and um, homey, uh, plain, happiness-making foods and things like that, soft blankets. So uh, That sounds amazing. It has been good, actually. It's in a, I will say to my child here all the time, like, is this hookah or is this not? And she's like, it is. And we do it or it's not. We don't do that. So we are tailoring our existence more mindfully toward uh, choosing things that are likely to bring us a peaceful and happy life. But yes, I also checked out like four jillion books on it electronically and picked through them and looked at what they had to say. That seems like a wonderful strategy. There you go. To bring yourself up to speed. And then also, it sounds like, systematically evaluate how that applies to your real life. There you go. That's what we're doing. Love it. Yep. Very good. So we should probably actually discuss these books, huh? I mean, it is the reason why, in theory, we have a podcast <laughs> so we can get together and talk about books and reading and writing. And reading and writing. So we've done the reading. We're still on target. We're still on. That's good. We're good. So would you like to read the Goodreads description of Old Man's War or would you like me to do it? Um, I will read it. Okay. Since this book was your suggestion, you read the good. Yes. Okay. Um, Old Man's War by John Scalzi. John Perry did two things on his 75th birthday. First, he visited his wife's grave. Then he joined the army. The good news is that humanity finally made it into interstellar space. The bad news is that planets fit to live on are scarce, and alien races willing to fight us for them are common. So, we fight. To defend Earth and to stake our own claim to planetary real estate. Far from Earth, the war has been going on for decades. Brutal, bloody, unyielding. Earth itself is a backwater. The bulk of humanity's resources are in the hands of the Colonial Defense Force. Everybody knows that when you reach retirement age, you can join the CDF. They don't want young people. They want people who carry the knowledge and skills of decades of living. You'll be taken off Earth and never allowed to return. You'll serve two years at the front, and if you survive, you'll be given a generous homestead stake of your own on one of our hard-won colony planets. John Perry is taking that deal. He has only the vaguest idea of what to expect, because the actual fight, light years from home, is far, far harder than he can imagine, and what he will become is far stranger. Mm. So mysterious. It is mysterious. There's going to be a lot of spoilers later in this podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. For this and for the other book, which I have to tell you how it ended. Um, do you want to discuss yes. Old Man's War first and then move on to the Agent to the Stars well, as long as we're here? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Thanks for reading this book I recommended. Well, thank you for recommending it. I really enjoyed it. It was my first John Scalzi book. I don't know how that's a thing, but it's a thing. I'm whatever. I'm a, a late comer to John Scalzi. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. You're here now. <laughs> I'm here now. But I have to say that the whole Goodreads write up here is the setup. For this book big time big time and then but i don't see how it can tell you any more because it's like one of the big deals in the book is that john perry signs up for the army not really knowing anything about what it will mean like what does the army look like or what are your duties and he knows that they are gonna you know 
in quotes, fix his 75-year-old body, but he doesn't know what that means. And I had taken a guess at what it meant, and I have to admit that I was uh, wrong, but close. Wrong, but close is pretty good yeah. for what it was. Yeah, there you go. I had thought they might uh, give him like a cyborg body, like your consciousness in a robot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw that's pretty close. It is pretty close. So the question, the first question that I had for you or for us to discuss was this concept that you sign up for this thing and you leave Earth forever. And would you do that? Would you sign up and leave Earth forever? I mean, I don't know if I would. But I am also not 75. Yeah, I was, I think, am I about 10 years older than you? Yes. I think I'm almost exactly 10 years older than you are. So I'm sitting here with my very tight fitting fingerless gloves on because my poor hands have such um, structural problems anymore. Uh, and, you know, the gloves hold, hold the bits and pieces together. And I don't know. Um, by now, I have my remaining parent is is a pretty old lady. She listens to this and she knows she's an old lady. It's okay. We love you, Mom. Um, but, you know, she has a lot of physical problems and a lot of her friends have physical problems or have died. Uh, and I know that the deterioration of her physical self is strugglesome and I don't want to say annoying but it's it's frustrating I guess for frustrating for her to the things that she has to do and the limitations that she has but I guess I can see that but the concept of of leaving behind the rest of it I just don't know that I could um yeah I mean, we just got rid of some furniture that literally we got off the curb 20 years ago, probably. Yeah. Some chairs that we reupholstered and a bench that, okay, we had picked a bed off by the side of the road that became my son's bed when he was two and a half, and it fell apart when he was 10 or 12, I guess, and it, my husband made it into this beautiful bench. We sent that away, too, because it just doesn't have a a place in this house and we never use it and some other furniture that we have really loved, but we sent away. So it's like things that have, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A sentimental value to me. And if I've been like waffling over sending away manky old chairs, I don't know that I could toss a whole planet. Right. Um, I, th- I thought that the book did a really good job of, of being in first person so that we just hear John Perry's voice and his thoughts on this. And he sets himself up to be a great main character, I thought, because he establishes why this is working for him. Right. And I will say he spends a lot of the time toward the beginning of the book, John Perry does talking to other people about what their reasons were for hanging it up. Um, some people did it for their physical well-being. Some people did it 
um, because of the sense of adventure or wondering what is out there since nobody on earth really knows what is out there. It could be anything. And uh, some people did it for this life is, is broken emotionally. So I'm going to go have a new life elsewhere. Right. Uh, this concept of, of starting over or, or trying again with what you know so, now. And what I love about all of that is we only see the people who went. Yes. We don't see the people who, within the confines of the books world, um, don't sign up at all. Or um, you're able to back out like until like a couple of days after you've signed the final paperwork. Yeah. Um, you know, so you're able to, for any reason, stay on earth. There's like, from the society that John Perry's from, at least, there's no pressure to do it. It's completely optional. Yeah. And that's something I thought that was really interesting about the book is what condition the earth is in. Because if you're going to write any science fiction book that takes place in the future with space travel and so forth, you have to say, well, what does Earth look like now? Is it uh, the utopian paradise of Star Trek? Or is it the um, endless garbage heap of Wally? You know? And yeah. I thought it was interesting what had changed and what hadn't changed. The Earth itself seemed to be in pretty good shape. Um, but people were just as lousy as people ever have been. I thought, you know, we've had this nuclear war in which we have nuked uh, India, Pakistan, somewhere like that. Yeah. Um, and so we still did that. There's still racism. There's a very racist character at the very beginning who is one yes. of the recruits. Uh so somehow we've managed to expand into the stars and still not get over accepting acceptance of variation within ourselves, you know? Uh, but there's still John Perry's life himself. He seems to have come from a, a pleasant place with gardens. And I mean, he's an ad man for Pete's sake. So like, it's, there's still that, that kind of almost retro feel to his personal life. So I thought that was interesting that Earth is just as it always has been and also completely different. And this concept of if, if we have not managed to to alter, change, or grow, or expand ourselves into something new, do you just chuck it and leave? And when you leave, you take it all with you. Yeah. Like, I love the part where it's like, we're going to leave earth to get away from earth but then also we're still taking these humans with us and so they're bringing all this humanness with them they are and, it, and it's and, a and mess there's 75 years worth of being human all the right you know the 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 teasers like well you bring all this experience and knowledge with you but you also bring a boatload of baggage yeah as as well and i know this is weird but this Signing up and going away to this new land or place you don't know anything about and then settling there when you're done reminded me of the Roman army. Oh. Uh, isn't that funny? Where you would sign up for the Roman army and you'd do your umpteen years of service in it and then you would be given a plot of land in one of Rome's colonies. So you might leave and go to, you know, Britannia and 
finish out your time and have a little farm in Britannia and never return to Rome. And I keep thinking that the, you know, the, the edges of the empire must have been almost as foreign to them as as outer space is to, to John Perry, but though they still brought their their togas and their oysters and their Samian ware pottery with them everywhere that they went. So they're bringing kind of the the comforts of home into the place that they're going to, but they're never coming back. Um, there you go. I really like the ways that it um, it lets us look at now, but in space. So it's like fun and sci-fi. It's one of my favorite things about John Scalzi novels generally is that it's just different enough that it's not real, obviously. So we can talk about all these real things we face, but without calling anybody contemporary out <laughs> yes. because this isn't space. Yes, although you are calling them out. You're just not uh, naming names here. Right, uh, because it's clearly science fiction. Correct. So in the end, I had said that I guessed that they would put John Perry's consciousness into a robot, and I was slightly wrong. Lisa, do you want to tell everybody what happens? I mean, they just cloned him and then put him back in himself, but better because they genetically modified his clone. That's right. So he's like better looking and in better shape and then has other interesting things like everybody's green because they have the ability to, you know, harness the power of the sun for food like plants do with chlorophyll. Yeah. Uh, and cat's eyes. And cat's eyes. So you're like you, and... but, but slightly better and weird. So suddenly mm-hmm. all these 75-year-olds are 20 and gorgeous yeah. and green. And smart blood. I do love smart blood. Yeah. Yeah, the smart blood was very, very nice. Uh, this, uh, yeah, like it's assessing your yep. problems and it's healing your wounds and doing its thing and uh, protecting you from crud. Everything. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of reminded me of like the the bots they put in your blood in The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet where they're kind of like getting your immunizations for this planet. Uh, yes, like, yes. So did you find that concept of exchanging your body for a different body to be attractive or repellent? Um, I found it to be weird because... You are exchanging your body for a different your body. And so I feel like I feel like it's a, a different concept than like, you know, swapping brains with another conscious being kind of. I don't know. Because the reason I ask this is to me, there's like, I have mixed feelings about this too. Because in the case of John Perry, right, it's still his body but just like young ish ish. and but he can look in the mirror and recognize himself as himself and so this concept is your body who you are or what kind of of how does the body that you're in affect the identity that you have and I am willing to accept that John Perry is John Perry regardless of the body that he's in the 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 he does things differently and stuff like that and learns things and expands differently based on the, the body that he gets but the essence of who he is 
is the same. Um, so on that felt I on that front I felt that the book was like advocating for what makes you human is the the soul of you, the insides of you. I would agree. But also then he breaks it. The later on in the book, <laughs> right. John meets Jane, right? Is her name? Yeah. Okay, Jane. Jane. Jane, so here's the next spoiler, folks. If you gosh, die before you turn seventy five, but you're signed up at the time. Yeah. They have taken a genetic sample of you ten years beforehand and they like speed grow these clones to put you in and they put all this time and money into making this clone of your body and then you're dead. So you can't use it. So they, where are they getting the other consciousness from? I mean, I think they're just making them. Making them. So they're making new consciousness and putting them into these cloned bodies that they made. So you're wearing, so Jane is one of these people that is a new consciousness in a, body that's a new body but it's made from john perry's wife's dead body right yeah so she looks like 20 year old and super hot john perry's wife but jane herself who's inside it is technically only like six years old she only has the experiences and emotional range of a six-year-old and there's kind of a romance there so if if what matters is your your insides, your soul, so that John Perry's outside is not necessarily a reflection of who he is, is it super creepy that he's kind of having romantic feelings for Jane, who is like six? Miss Ha? A little bit. I mean, yeah, it gives you lots to think about. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it makes you think about, oh, well, it's not maybe just the consciousness. It's the life experience. Right. Yeah. Like, because she's so she like, she has not, had a super fast six years. I got to say, she's not been playing with with blocks and learning to count during her six years. She's been right. Like, she's got like six years of combat. combat experience and she's never been anything other than an adult. But the book specifically talks about the people who are like Jane being having you know less emotional maturity than people like john perry who have 75 years of, of living which i think is very realistic to humans because your actual age on your birth certificate driver's license whatever does not actually accurately transmit your emotional range to this others. is true story that is a true story i've right? known lots of 30 year olds so. with the emotional range <laughs> As a, uh, you know, a green bean. Um, right. And lots of little children so, who are wise. But it's still, I will say that did squick me out just a little bit. And then I was like, but I don't know. I mean, yeah. since her six years have been six adult years. And she has the intellectual capacity of an adult, just not 70 years of emotional growth. So I think that one of the things John does for her is is help her fill in what emotional growth could look like. He can't like download his wife into her, but he can talk to her about what it 
like what emotional growth is. So, so here's another question for you. So it's important to Jane, and I can't remember the name of John's wife, so I'm just going to call her John's wife. It's important to Jane to know more about John's wife and what she was like. It's the nature versus nurture thing. If Did yeah. you get anything from John's wife other than, you know, an empty suit to put on? Right. Or not. Um, which made me think about um, adoptive children, of which there's a bazillion in my personal family, and their yeah. desire to know where did I come from, even if I never had a relationship with any of those people or any memories of any of those people. How important is it for you to know where your physical self originated? And is that part of body identity? So for what I'm saying here is that, is that yes. for a page turning quite funny, um, action filled space war adventure story, it gives you a lot to think about. It does. This is why I like John Scalzi. <laughs> now, you know, it's really hard to say, oh, but it's like about people and I like the romance. Right. But like, that's what I like. It makes you think all the time, like, what does it mean to be human and how do we relate to each other and. What does it mean for us to go out into the world and try to be humans with other people? And what do all of our systems let us do? And what do they all prevent us from doing and why? These are his themes, I think. Yep. So a lot of, lot of book there for uh, a, a proudly and happily and joyously genre novel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. I mean, I think it's lovely. There's a lot more books in this series. Um, and they don't always follow. I mean, they kind of always follow John Perry. Now I can't remember. I, think I liked them I all. looked up the second one, and I think it's Jane's book. Yeah. And there's one with their daughter, well, eventually. Exciting. Eventually, I think. I'm almost sure I'm remembering <laughs> that right. You've read a lot of John Scalzi books. This is like me and Georgette Hare novels. There's, you know, what, 30 something of them. I've read them all, uh, some of them multiple times, and sometimes like now. Which book was it that had that, you know, dog right. in it or, or the heroine or whatever? And I, I get them a little scattered sometimes. So. I liked all of them. That's that's the thing. That's the thing. So we can uh, we can take a look then at the other book, which I read yes. uh, and sprung on you. I was going to wait and not tell you that I'd read it all the way until podcast time, but <gasps> I know just a surprise. But surprise. I I cracked um, and okay. told you that I had read it. And interestingly, it's a book I had checked out of the library a long time ago, like a year ago, when. Because I know you love John Scalzi, and I was like, I should read John Scalzi, and this looked funny to me and charming, and so mm -hmm. I checked it out, but I didn't get it read, so I had to give it back because they're fussy about that. Um, Sometimes. Yeah. Um, so the other book that I read was Agent to the Stars, which turned out to be, and like I said, I picked it up because I thought it looked charming, but it turns out to be John Scalzi's first novel. 
so which he wrote to is a practice book to find out if he could write a book and he like gave it away for donations on his website and stuff like that so it's the book that launched his career i guess agent to the stars and i will read the goodreads description of that one and i before i start i want a free pass on uh Saying the name of the aliens in this book, because do you want to know how they say it? On yes, the I do. They call them the Yaharajik. 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 Okay, Yaharajik. Okay. So this is Agent of the Stars by John Scalzi. The spacefaring Yaharajik have come to Earth to meet us and to begin humanity's first interstellar friendship. There's just one problem: they're hideously ugly and they smell like rotting fish. So getting humanity's trust is a challenge. The Herajik needs someone who can help them close the deal. Enter Thomas Stein, who knows something about closing deals. He's one of Hollywood's hottest young agents. But although Stein may have just concluded the biggest deal of his career, it's quite another thing to negotiate for an entire alien race. To earn his percentage this time, he's going to need all the smarts, skills, and wits he can muster. So... How much of this book did you get through and or remember, Lisa? Um, I don't remember how he does that. Um, I got through to the part where um, Thomas Stein has just been on the cover of the magazine, okay. of the Gossipy magazine, and he's panicked and trying to shore up his real career and sort of neglecting the alien that's at his house. Okay with the dog right. i'm right there okay so his dad had been a literary agent which is why he wants to be a literary agent and he's uh turns out to be a really likable character at first i was worried about him because he's pretty slick yeah. um hollywood agent and he's kind of that his career's just blossoming he has some okay clients and he has one client who is dumb as a drawer of socks but she has just made a movie that grows like 200 million and he's just closing a deal for her to be in the sequel. And it's her first big payday of, I can't remember, like $12 million or something. And yeah. points and um, stuff like that. When he's called in his boss's office who says, blah, blah, aliens. And I want you to, to, you know, make it good for them to come to Earth. And here is this sample alien to take back home with you. And they do look like, if this was d and I thought they'd be gelatinous cubes. But nice, they're sludgy, awful, right. super stinky, and they communicate by smell. They smell at each other, send each other scents, um, mm -hmm. all of which are really nasty. And all the descriptions of the bad smells I'd loved. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so he's trying to help this alien and keep it secret. He has to offload a lot of his clients onto other people. Um, and his next door neighbors have an old dog that comes over, which makes friends with the alien and the alien can inhabit you. Yes. So like the dog drops dead of a heart attack cause he's super old. So the alien goes into his body and becomes the dog so that he can go out into the world more as a dog and understand the world better. And um, so John Stein's suddenly very famous 
beautiful actress who's so stupid. She really wants a role in this biopic about a Polish poet uh, who is a Holocaust survivor, except she's just too dumb to understand it. And in the end, the actress <laughs> suffers a, a horrible death. They're going to make a silicon mask of her um for her I next totally forgot yeah, that for her next ended. movie and have to do that you know latex over your face with with plugs the uh, straws mm-hmm. up your nose for this space alien movie she's going to be in and she goes to a reading for the movie she wants to be in and she blows it and it's just awful and she's really depressed so she decides to smother herself so she takes the tubes out of her nose and then she changes her mind but she can't Get him back in and she bonks herself on the head and has this terrible accident where she um, like suffocates but doesn't die. So she becomes brain dead. So she's just mm-hmm. like a body. And there's some moral quandary of should the alien inhabit her body or not? Is it morally okay? without? Because the aliens always require your permission before they'll do this. Because they don't want to like invade your personal space. And, and, you know, cons- consent you. is like a big deal for these aliens, which is good. They're, they're so lovely. they eventually decide that she didn't really want to die. And so the alien comes in and inhabits her body and becomes her and goes and rereads for the Holocaust movie and is fabulous and gets the role and builds all these bridges and wins the Academy Award for Best Actress for this movie and at the Academy Awards reveals itself in fact to be an alien and it's like if you could accept this um, very stupid bimbo white girl with blue eyes as this strong Holocaust surviving woman who who brings justice and so forth to the American South and everything else then hopefully you'll be able to accept someone who looks as different as he does as a gelatinous cube as also something you can accept. So that's how they introduce the icky alien species to us as don't look at what I look like, look at who I am. Um, so that's how it ends, Lissa. And it doesn't tell you what happens right after well, it that? it does. It it has like a... I just can't remember. The agent marries his assistant, who we really like. The Excellent. aliens stay above Earth in their ship, which is a hollowed out asteroid. But they're inviting like leaders to come talk. And the, the alien who's down on Earth goes on like speaking tours around the world. And um, you can see them via TV and stuff like that. So we're... They, they, he successfully launches them and he still is the agent to all the aliens. So if you want to talk to them or interact or anything, you have to go through their agent. They'll just say, talk to my agent. And then you have to talk to their agent to, to get them. So it ends up really well for everybody, except the dog. Um, who did have a good long life and died happy. So that was okay. Uh, and like that. And Yeah. So, it, it, so it that's kind of lovely. Yeah, it's a lovely, very funny and charming book. Um, a lot lighter in feel than Old Man's War, which has more like overtly 
pronounced themes. Okay. I thought Agent of the Stars, to me, also discussed those other things like... Um, like outward appearance and the Holocaust and um, the shallowness of perception and mm -hmm. how, how we monetize talent. how we monetize talent and uh, things like that. So it had a lot of that going on, but in a way it was a lighter, fluffier feeling book than, than old man's war, but I enjoyed the heck out of it. Um, and it was the sort of, Again, you know, lightweight, super charming, but with some depth, genre read that I I really needed. So as somebody who's read a lot of John Scalzi books, which one is more typical of, of what he writes? Or are they both kind of typical of what he writes? They are both typical of what he writes because he writes like good readable science fiction uh, relatively fast-paced, interesting characters that you could kind of see in a movie, even though they're not in movies. Um, you can imagine them well. Um, you're interested in their dialogue because you know it's going to move things along. Um, he writes like that. Um, he doesn't have any wasted scenes, really. Um, he writes like that in all of his books. So then it just depends on what book you're reading. So like his lock-in series... Like, if I try to describe it, I'm going to be like, oh, well, it's like kind of about um, professional football. If you started introducing robots that could play too, but also it's not actually about that. It's about if you um, had a disease um, that affected a lot of people um, and then the government rallied to make special accommodations for the people who survived it and were affected by it um, and radically changed society because of that and had special protections and services for those people. But then it's about like, you know, like all in one book. It's like, it's all, you know, so he, I feel like he often takes several big societal themes and sci-fi's them and then tries to see what would play out in our real world if our real world was different in these ways. And we were forced to confront whatever thing this is in this new way that's very different than real life, but also still the humans involved are going to be our real humans and so, you know, privileged people will get to do things differently or uh, the American public will totally want to still watch football or like whatever thing it is. So, so what I'm hearing you say is like, I am a big fan of John Scalzi on Twitter and yes. uh, follow him and look forward to his posts and derive great uh, joy from his Twitter feed, which is, is charming. But sometimes it's like super serious. And when he makes errors, whether they are present or past John Scalzi errors, he owns it and apologizes it for it correctly and does better in the future. And also you get the idea that he's a very funny guy, uh, extremely charming and uh, um, committed to the people around him. But he does have that, that uh, streak of... of goofy charm so in a way reading his books is just reading they really are John Scalzi books it does not have a different like writerly persona than who he really is do you think that's true or is it all lies or his or his right well 
or his, I don't know, because I don't know him outside of Twitter or his fiction. Right. But he's been blogging longer than he's been writing fiction, I believe. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, writing opinion pieces, writing things about the writing industry, writing. Like, I think that if he has some sort of, like, secret other life that we don't need to know because everything he presents to the world, um, I mean, to you and I personally, appears to be pretty enjoyable yeah. and human. I think, I think it probably and is we, true, but, you know, that kind of crossover between your digital personality performance and who you are and like you know obviously yeah there's things that are private and behind the wall of of things as opposed to he just i'm sure he's not throwing everything out there in public but uh but i can name all of his cats right uh, so and they look like very nice cats so i think you've converted me i think i'm now a john scalzi fan you should read the new series because it's so good <laughs> It's about climate change, and it never once mentions climate change. That's the last emperor is the last one in it, right? Okay. Yes. Because I, I know that one just came out this year. Um, so I clearly, I, I shouldn't not. If I had any room for more books to check out of the library that they would let me have, clearly I should check out a lot of John Scalzi books. I'm gonna yes. have to give back all my um, Huga books to make room. And I think that's you're ready. John Scalzi is a different kind of comfort. You can start with the collapsing empire, and then, like, it will be amazing. And if I light my little huga candles and have my soft blanket and my cup of tea and my schnauzer and my book, then I shouldn't need all the other huga manuals. I should just be able to have, you know, John Scalzi and the cat and the tea or dog and the tea and the blanket and the candles. Well, I mean, they don't say it in your huga books, but I feel like John Scalzi books is part of the comfort. Should be. Should be definitely should, should be. be could definitely. be, as long as you're finding it comforting. So you can hold it up and say, "Is this fitting with my practice of surrounding myself by things from which I find comfort?" Okay, that sounds legit. I'll do that. Excellent. But first, we're yes. not going to read another John Scalzi book next time. <clears throat> I mean, not specifically for this podcast. We can just privately read a lot of John Scalzi books. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should discuss what's coming up for us here. Yes. Right. What kind of reading are we doing? Are we doing a close reading of it? What are we going to learn? Which this is the Movable Feast by Hemingway. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Movable. Okay. I am. People should know that I am a long time. Um, what's the opposite of a fan? Uh, I don't want to be a hater. Outspoken antagonist <laughs> of Ernest Hemingway. Um, resistor. Resi- I resist him. Like I tried to read the Paris wife about his first wife, Hadley in Paris. And I couldn't because Hemingway, I thought was such a jerk. I just couldn't stand it. Every time he comes on the page, he's such a jerk. So I have some big problems with reading Ernest Hemingway and a long history of reading Ernest Hemingway and being mad at him the whole time. But I need to read a movable feast for reasons, okay. um, which is a posthumously published selection of chapters or essays or stories about Hemingway's life in Paris in the early 1920s and the people that he knew there and what it was like to be a member of the lost generation uh, living and working in Paris. 
and I was hoping to convince you also to read this since I need to read it. I felt that if you read it also, A, I would read it, and B, you could support me emotionally um, and or agree with me that Ernest Hemingway is a wicked bad person and we could chew on him for a while. Or you can maybe convince me that I've been so, really overly harsh to him all these years and that I need to calm way down. So our dual goals would be to hate on it and also learn from it. Or, like I said, I could be wrong. I could be just have maligned him needlessly all this time. He could be wonderful and awesome. I could be totally wrong about Ernest Hemingway. Um, but I have a very difficult time separating the work from the person and the person is not somebody I personally care for and people are welcome to write me about how wrong I am and I'm, I'm prepared to accept that. Uh, I saw this thing on Facebook where people were like getting together to like hate watch something and you like just spend the whole time like chatting your friend about how awful it is and it didn't appeal to me at all because I don't really watch things but like we could hate, hate, hate read a movable feast. feast. I, I'm down with that. I'm down with that. Just as an experiment. Okay. And like, if we accidentally find parts we like, or we accidentally learn from it, we're open to that. And if not, we could start a whole new movement for the book readers of the world to hate read things. I think we should try to see how that looks for reading. It's important to adapt (laughs) cultural trends to readers, not just I like it. This gives me a purpose in this beyond my own uh, other purposes for reasons that I need to read it. Yeah. So I feel like snarky comments or like <laughs> what you could have done better. Like, I don't really know how to hate read something. We're going to have to gonna have to invent it. it. Okay. So we'll come with, with thoughts on how to, how to hate read and why you should. Like using yes. Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway to do that. This is the best podcast. <laughs> it is. It is. It's a, we seem to have an ability to, to constantly find new ways to, to do this. So that's good. So both hate reading a movable feast. Yes. Very good. Also inventing Inventing hate reading. reading. We're going to do it right here. On the fly. We're going to be be awesome. Yes. Good job. (sighs) Well, hopefully our listeners have enjoyed our foray into John Scalzi and will be really busy reading and listening to John Scalzi novels now. Um, Of course, anyone can join in by (laughs) hate reading a movable (laughs) feast with us. Send us your... um, Send us your thoughts on that. Or if you know what hate reading is already, feel free to educate us. Excellent. Well, also, as we're recording this, Marion, it is late August, heading into September. And every year, um, National Novel Writing Month does an InstaRimo challenge on Instagram during September. Um, and it's the reason why I joined Instagram actually, so that we could do that challenge together a few years ago. I, I think, um, I think are you I looking joined, forward to Instagram? Yeah, I, I joined Instagram with you at the same time to <gasps> do this particular challenge. I am looking forward to it and I'm interested to see how different it's going to look this year in this strange year. Yeah. Um, I like that it's already a remote way to virtually connect socially about writing plants. That's already baked into it. So I can't decide if I want it to feel normal and familiar and just like last year, or if I want somebody to push me a little in engaging in this a little bit more for writing. Yeah, um, my our local libraries here have already scheduled in some weekly... NaNoWriMo prep 
get write-in get-togethers to help people mm-hmm. that way. And I know that NaNoWriMo itself is all virtual this year. So we're going to be exploring this new landscape of how we write together separately. Um, yes. Uh, our library is also not doing um, in-person programming um, this fall. And so I have Zoom sessions scheduled for um, two NaNo um, events, our usual October ones here in Topeka. And I, even in trying to, in trying to think through how it all adapts, like I wrote the description to be like, well, the first half hour, we're going to chat, then the program will be the one hour. And then after that, we'll have more time to chat. (laughs) Because it's different, and you have to build in the connecting. And as far as, as it happens, I have some experience with Zoom based group writing. So we've been doing that around here. And in a way, I think if you want like events during NaNoWriMo, it might not feel that much different. You bring your computer and your snacks and your little rewards and your drinks, whatever, and you sit here and people chat for a bit and then turn off their cameras and mics for 20 minutes and write. And then they're called back to chat some more. And then they do, you know, another sprint. So I think in terms of like the actual write-ins during November itself, those could feel pretty similar. Uh, That gives me hope. That's awesome. So, but I am looking forward to InstaRimo itself. I have no idea what the prompts are going to be this year. They're always interesting. Uh, I'm somebody who likes to make a lot of little forms for myself to fill out <laughs> when I'm writing the book. Like, yes. what is this scene about and stuff? So I have like scene organizers and word count organizers and stuff. And I tend to post those on Instagram during InstaRimo and send them out to anybody who wants them in this world. I've had a lot of people ask me, can I have this? I'm like, sure. And to send it off. To yeah. Uh, so there's hope. There is hope. Writing gives yes. us hope. That's our message. Um, I started pitching my nano novel this morning to a friend. We were sitting outside in my garden, chatting outside. And um, it's the same friend who's the only person who's ever read one of my nano novels. And, uh, I don't have great ideas yet. That's what I learned. But it's only I'm talking you here. Whatever, whatever, let's face it, Lisa, whatever, whatever idea you have now isn't what you're going to be writing come November anyway. So just play and be free. I know it was good to, it was good to, to talk through though. Like it was good to talk through like themes or how it might work to, to talk about the pandemic without talking about the pandemic and. It was good. It was good to start thinking through so that I don't feel stuck when I get there. I am actually thinking of rewriting a book I wrote several years ago for NaNoWriMo, but rewriting it as an adult book uh, instead of a children's book. And and really things are clearer to me in my head now about what those themes are that I want to write about or, or... what these characters that are still in my head actually should do and should mean so it'd be a very very different book but with characters that i have written about before but i have totally not read that book since i pressed save and close on it several years ago so it's still fresh like a new idea that makes it awesome all right well we have lots of time to think of our nano ideas and practice and plan and you know, start over all those things because it's months and weeks yeah. away. All right. Um, well, I'm sure we will update our listeners soon on our nano plans. 
Thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations at thebookevangelist at gmail.com.